You're now listening to Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid. Be sure to subscribe to Fintech Confidential on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player by going to podcast.fintechconfidential.com and sign up for Fintech Confidential information at access.fintechconfidential.com. Hi, I'm your host, Ted Huff. For this episode, Wade Arnold, the CEO of Move, joins us for an Ask Me Anything interview session. I'm excited for you to learn about what Move is doing and how Wade has built this 100% remote team. Let's dive right in with the first question. Developer first is a great catchphrase that a lot of companies use, but how would you explain what that means, aka what is needed for companies to deliver that to the market? Developer first is, you know, the, to get something working. So if I, I want a page payment, I want to, you know, store. What does it take for me to make that work? And so, uh, develop turned into an entrepreneur. Just as entrepreneur is, is a way. Um, and it's like, would I use this product? And I mean, um, of being, how do we define easy? I would hope that a platform would make enough abstractions. So I don't have to learn all the complexity of all this stuff going on. I, I think we in FinTech are still in an area where I'm picking this provider and that provider, and I got to orchestrate all this stuff together and hopefully it works and hopefully it's compliant. If we're talking about every software becoming every software company becoming a fintech company, there's not going to be the list the buzzwords AML, KYC, KYB, CIP guru on staff at every single dev shop. And I think that challenge of how do you make it work? How do you make money move without having to be an expert in this because you want it as a feature inside of your product is really the challenge that we've chosen to take on. I appreciate you diving in deeper on that one. I was working with a couple of folks and we were looking at how could we leverage Move with some of the projects that we've got going on. One of the questions that came up for those people who have decided to go the serverless option, do you have something that can support that team? Absolutely. And I'm going to throw an asterisk up there, but it depends. So every single one of our open source projects is first written as a Go library. So if you're a Go programmer, you can import that directly and just use it as a, a very simple library inside of your programming language. Unfortunately, it's a pretty high bar to say you're a Go programmer in FinTech and want to build your entire payment infrastructure yourself. So assuming that we can't find enough of those people, we wrapped everything into binaries that run on Linux, Windows, and Mac that allow for a restful interface to all of those libraries. And then assuming you can't install a binary, we actually made Docker containers that allow you to run it on every single build we have. You have a Docker container that allows you to use the application. And then we've made those Docker containers work very well on top of Kubernetes. And so that kind of foundation, as long as you can run a Docker container, you can run our services. You can run any of our Go services in a serverless, deploy them as, as serverless functions. The caveat there is there are a lot of things about payments that build up state. And so there are 
a handful of areas where uh, a lot of serverless functions don't handle state very well. They're spun up to do something and then destroyed. So if you want to build a 10,000 record ACH file, obviously you need to keep state. But if you only need one transaction in that ACH file, it, it would work. That's a bunch of nerds speak there. Then that's okay. I have a follow-on question to that. Why Go? That was started as an in-house custom language at Google. It's not really seen as a mainstream, or at least from my perspective, a mainstream language. I, I would agree with your assessment. I think the motivation came from at Bano where we were a Scala development house and really embraced functional programming there. And there's a lot of advantages to that, but it, you really had to understand how we wrote code and our best practices. And the, the nice thing about Scala is you can solve a problem a thousand different ways. The bad thing about Scala is you can solve a problem a thousand different ways. Leaving Bano, one of the things that I wanted to find was more approachable language where it was more about getting things done than getting things done necessarily eloquently. And Go was something that I found because I got involved in Docker and Kubernetes and InfluxDB. Really, if you go look through the majority of the Cloud Native Foundation projects, they're all written in Go. And I don't think that's because Go is this you know, beautiful, eloquent language. It's, it's quite verbose. But the beauty of it is it's highly opinionated. And so there's normally only one way to solve a certain problem, maybe two, but two is a stretch compared to if you attacked it with Clojure or Java or, or Scala, you could solve it in many more ways. And I think the reason that a lot of these highly popular open source projects have adopted Go is really, there's no argument over a style of programming. It's forced by the language, which is why Google did it in order to have hundreds of thousands of programmers working on the same code base. And it's probably why it's flourishing inside of the open source community. And it's fast as hell. <laughs> I've, I've heard the last one frequently, so I get that. Lee, let's go ahead and hit with your first question. My name is, is Lee Easton. Company name is aerovision.io. We started in the aerospace industry five, six years ago using drones to capture data for as-built construction models. There's been a lot of transition over time, whereas now we're very focused on data engineering software development. I've got two, so we'll go with this, the soft pitch first. Wade, as the entrepreneur, Wade as the business owner, what, what is going to be your biggest challenge looking forward, whether it's this year or the next few years to come, as you, know, you continue to grow and operate and move? I think one of our biggest challenges is that there's probably two and, and both of them bubble up to positioning in the marketplace. We've chosen two audacious goals. The first is to be as close to the network as possible. What we mean by that is banking as a service is somewhat of a buzzword right now. And there's a lot of banks and companies and products that are putting APIs on top of multiple vendors and legacy infrastructure providers that then are on top of their own legacy infrastructure providers that are then 
over an ISDN line, do an I adapter to a mainframe. And so there's this huge stack of tech that if you want a new feature, you have to call seven companies and hopefully you're the most important customer at all seven of those companies. And I think that comes from this assumption that the legacy systems worked, so they don't. They work for branch banking. The tech is different. The scale is different. The, the rate of change and feature change is different. And so we've chosen to start over, literally open source projects and go directly to the networks, whether that's the clearinghouse or Fedline or Visa and have nothing in between us. The downfall of that is we don't have very many features, but it's very thin substrate. So we think, I think if we started this company four years ago, there wouldn't have been enough bumps and bruises of people in the industry that figured out that the layers of lasagna are deep. But I think educating the marketplace that that's important to be close to the network is as close to the wire as possible is important. The, the other piece that we're probably struggling with and articulating is we're really focused on this money in, stored value, money out. And that's been around for a long time, but maybe it was thesis or some one vendor for the money in. It waits three days, it hits a legacy core banking system. They may hold it for two days. You may double check it with a screen scraper to check your balance. And then you may use a different vendor to load a prepaid card or send out an ACH. And we think that this marketplace economy needs that to happen in about 20 seconds from money into money out and, and to the end user. And being able to explain that in the marketplace as a value proposition, oh, that's like XYZ company. We're trying to be that, that company. I've chosen to go really technical, really fault tolerant, really highly scalable for those flows. And unfortunately, you sometimes have to experience it not working to see the value in how we're making it work. It's exciting to start something new. And being an innovator in an emerging market, it, it sucks because you can't say, well, we're doing what Simple did, but we're white labeling it. Then everyone already knows what that means. That's going to be a challenge for us. And I'm sure some analysts will come up with a term for what we're doing at some point. Also have witnessed and ran into some of the, the exact issues you're talking about, the legacy platforms just how slow things tend to move. So that's why we are very thankful that Moop is out there. Yeah, that's we should name the company that. It needs to move faster. Hey, that's a great idea. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and move on to Simon. What question do we have for Wade today? Wade, I've got an interesting question for you. When people come to you looking for a solution or with a typical problem statement, where do you see the pain points and the points of infection in the market generally? The most common person that reaches out to me is a software engineer, or at least I would say technical founder. And so I, I commonly joke we're the most popular fintech on GitHub. I also think we're the only fintech on GitHub that isn't open sourcing their proprietary SDK. We get a lot of inbound from technical entrepreneurs that are trying to solve a problem. And so the pushback or the challenge I always give them is more awareness of what's actually happening in the industry. I've got this problem, so I'm sure everyone else has, and maybe there's already somebody doing that. The second piece is ultimately this is a highly regulated industry and fail fast is great unless it's FinCEN and 
they send you to jail. So the compliance aspect, the regulatory hurdles, and really the reality that you need a partner bank and a relationship with that partner bank that allows you to do your idea is probably the biggest hurdle that we see in people trying to, to build something cool. You could have worked at Google, Facebook, Apple, and done all this amazing stuff in software, and you're an incredible software engineer, and you just want to go do this unique, cool thing. But not only do you need to be technical in fintech, it is fintech. There is the financial services side of it that, that you need to understand. Thanks, Wade. I appreciate that. Simon, does that clarify everything for you? Absolutely. All right, Liz, welcome to Fintech Confidential and the Ask Wade Anything event. So what question do you have for Wade, Liz? I run a recruitment firm that focuses on payments and fintech. I get most of my clients through referrals. I have a lot of clients come in through referrals that are either private equity firms that are combining companies together or a company that is noticing revenue on their payment side wants to expand it and integrate it with other areas of their company or a couple companies that have acquired companies and then want to build out a payments platform. I want to get your perspective on if a company or a PE firm is wanting to combine several business units or companies and expand their payments, what are some things you suggest that they do first? We love taking PE money, so <laughs> you can send them my way, but all jokes right. aside, I th there was two parts of that question. So I, I first want to answer it maybe from the placement side, the, the people looking to get into those jobs and advice I would have for somebody that wanted to be an engineer inside of financial services. Number one, whether or not your end job is in go or not, contributing to open source projects that are you know, foundational to, to the payments infrastructure. I mean, you, you go into our Slack channel today and you've got Square Capital asking a lot of questions and really a lot of insight on a technical level. If you can, you know, get into that code base, you can learn a lot. I always recommend the payment systems in the USA book is, is a great book for developers that, that want to understand this. But I think placing people into fintechs or engineers or product managers wanting a job inside of in tech, just a little bit of effort, you're going to be way above anybody else in, in finding positions. I know it's one of the hottest segments of technology that's growing, so excited about that. To your other question of, hey, let's just merge these two systems. I think companies like Fiserv and FIS have realized there's not an easy synergy if you have four different payment processing systems, how you integrate them quickly. And to find those synergies, it's frankly, it's usually easier to pick a winner and migrate everybody over to it or do the net new strategy, which is simply who do we want to be when we grow up? Let's shut down everything and migrate over to that solution. I did work at Arthur Anderson for one year, we were very good at billing out. I think our motto was when in doubt, bill it out. I'm always skeptical of consultants that are not practitioners of the craft and make sure you're pointing them towards people that have done this before in their life. All right. And so for full disclosure, I have known Liz for a really long time. I'm going to answer this because of my experience with Liz. I think you're doing the right thing by referring it off. There are going to be not ready to bring on that 
head of payments and or they're trying to build out the right product, if they don't have the right experience or the right technical skills, it always makes sense to find somebody who has the experience of doing it before even if it isn't doing the exact same thing, to get that point. And then those people that have the know-how may not be the doers. They may be that visionary or that executor that really drives that project forward. If you find someone that's really good in that area, the likelihood of them knowing the group or individuals that can build out the product that is needed, leveraging something like Move, that is going to be extremely high and very probable for you. That's the the perspective that I'm seeing it from. Oh, exactly. Thank you for these responses. And I've also gotten some good phrases, things to present things to the potential client, because I obviously I'm not a developer. I'm not a technical person. I'm a recruiter. And I, I was wondering how to explain this to these variety of clients. So this has been really helpful. I'm glad. Thanks, Liz, for showing up. Moving on to Michelle, what question do you have? Hi, I was wondering if anybody could speak to trends that you're seeing as to how embedded tech, such as what Move has to offer, who the main audience is, whether it's institutional or fintech startups, and if a large portion is fintech startups, like what you're seeing and how they're using embedded tech as part of building their MVPs. The area that I'm most excited about, I've spent the last 15 years building products for banks. And so the go-to-market strategy was always an, another feature for the bank. The emerging trend that I'm seeing is really wanting banking-like functionality inside of products. And the motivation is not because they want to be a bank. Starbucks didn't want to be a bank. They just wanted a better user experience. But we see all kinds of crazy stuff that people have these ingenious ideas. We've got one prospect right now, and they are the doggy daycare as a service platform. So they're like the Shopify for pet daycare. You can upload your vaccinations and you can check in on Fido and see who she played with through a mobile app and web portal. But they do payments still in point of sale and out of band of that platform. So really all they're looking for is to add that feature to accept the credit card or have the reoccurring payment brought into that platform. So it becomes this one-stop shop. For me, that's awesome. No bank's ever going to build the platform for pet daycare, but they're building it in a way that is reaching hundreds of communities that are using that software to run a better business. As abstract as this pet daycare concept is, we see that pattern over and over uh, again. That's what's most exciting. All of that's electronics, commerce. Is that B2B? Is it consumer to business and business back to consumer? It blends the lines of what we have this, these really big silos inside of the banking space. I own majority of a brewery here in Colorado, and we use a software product called BrewBooks, clever name. And it, it manages the kegs and it manages the fermenting and all this stuff. And it, all that was done on paper before. And now our customers can subscribe and they can know when their favorite beer is going to be back on tap. And we just see that that kind of vertical software as a service being replicated in every industry to make these businesses do what they do best. And that's pouring beer and taking care of pets. And payments is just a piece of that puzzle to make it easier for their customers to interact with them. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle.
for that question. It was very down to the core of the purpose of MOVE. We truly appreciate you asking that question. Shay, go ahead and do an introduction and ask your question. Thanks, Ted, uh, for inviting me to FinTech Confidential. And thanks, Wade, for all your uh, insights. My background is in consulting. Uh, I work with a FinTech currently here in Canada. We're a startup, but we have exploded on the scene and getting close to about $3 billion in payments here after about a year and a half since our inception. And one of the things that I think we find unique and was spoken a little bit about earlier was the fact that our executive board has a lot of traditional bankers on it, either from the top five or creators of digital banks that end up being bought out in the U.S. And one of the things that I'm really interested in as I'm listening here is people's perceptions of the divide between fintechs and and the banking system in terms of just their human resources. Do you see in the U.S. a lot more fintechs having some executives from the banks and pulling human resources from the banking sector? And how are you seeing that trend? Because one of the things that we're finding here in Canada is that you've got these payment service providers, you've got a bunch of these fintechs, but a lot of them are going to end up fizzling out because they don't understand what we were talking about before in terms of the regulations. They're not future-proofing themselves in terms of what the banks might do. And, And so how do you see that playing out? I actually think it's in line with what Simon asked. And in a way, I'll maybe answer that in a more pragmatic, like how to execute on that. So the last company that that I was fortunate to be a part of, Bilgo, which was a modern bill payment platform, when very early on, we, we hired a chief compliance officer, a chief risk officer, Kimberly Hebb. And Kimberly was at the OCC for 13 years before we brought her on board. And talk about an initial culture war, fail fast and 13 years at the OCC. But that sounds like a match made in heaven, Wade. Yeah, match made in heaven. And and that was us fighting before we talked to the super regionals in order to help them with their bill pay needs. But that conscious decision of rather than waiting to have your hand slapped, that's a horrible thought process. But going out of your way and bringing somebody onto your executive team early on that has been there, done that, and done it, most importantly, at scale, because all of us doing startups, obviously, want to scale, is, to me, a key differentiator. And so I do a lot of angel investments, and that's one of the key things that I'm looking for is if I'm just pure tech, but I've got the latest and greatest buy now, pay later strategy, and I don't have anybody that understands lending and loan loss reserves and how that works, pretty skeptical about their platform. And I would encourage what you're doing is it's better to have those battles internally before you're having them with a prospective customer. And I I think you said $3 billion in processing. $3 billion in transactions is a shit ton. $3 billion of processing is right at that spot where you're you're going to start getting some people watching what you're doing and you're becoming a critical vendor. And so I think it's super important what you've done to surround yourself with those people. And I would highly encourage the technical founder or the idea founder to surround themselves with people that understand this highly regulated space. Let's call it what it is. Banking hasn't changed. Insurance hasn't changed. Healthcare hasn't changed because there's been a moat around it called regulation. And that sounds regulation, compliance, these sound like scary words, but if you embrace them and make them a critical differentiator for you, now it's not a scary word. Now it's now it's a way to beat up your competition. Agreed, thank you for the input. Yeah, I'm sure it's a pain in the ass, but I, I also assure you it will work in the long run. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the tech side. I was the rock star that joined for marketing and sales. So I always look at the compliance guys like, <laughs> 
the, all the business guys, all the conservative bankers always make me just bow my head down. And Canada is super conservative as well. If you look at instant payments in Canada, for example, in the banking environment, there's only four banks that are allowed to do it from a regulatory perspective. So the, the moat in Canada is actually pretty vast. No, that's great. What's the, the Megan Trainer song? My name is no, my sign is no. That's like the favorite song of every regulator. Apparently, the Canadians were supposed to bring forward a new Banking and Finance Act in Canada, which was supposed to liberalize the market. For three years in a row, they left it out of the budget, including this year. So a lot of the fintechs in Canada are really annoyed. I was talking to Lawrence Cook, who's the CEO of NanoPay, and he was like, I can't believe that three years in a row we've been promised this, and three years in a row it wasn't in the announcement. Yeah, absolutely. And the budget just came out, so everybody's scrambling around just wondering what the hell. But it's been that way for, like we said, we've got some executives on the team that are 20 years, and they've been talking about digitizing payments for that long, 15 years. That's crazy. Yeah, you're in an interesting market. In 2012, I remember presenting to Rogers Telecom because every telecom was going to be a bank and democratize banking through telecoms. Wait, the, so Shay and Simon both just brought something up that has me curious. You're primarily U.S. focused. Do you have any plans to expand beyond that? And if so, where? We're primarily protocol focused. This is just the nature of what's in your backyard. The most ubiquitous payment network in the United States is ACH. PayPal contributed all the code in order for cross-border transactions between the United States and Canada. So all of that's supported in our libraries. At a low level, we're ISO 8583, ISO 20022. There's modifications in the US, the clearinghouse and bedwire some other things have taken that protocol and, and added some features to it, but that's used in Swift and other protocols. We're working very closely with Google and some of the team there in order to bring UPI into the open source realm. So the work that they did inside of India in order to democratize that, but we're really focused on money movement and we see that at a protocol and payment level. I don't foresee us being in the FX transfers world, but we but definitely, if you're trying to build something in the UK or Canada, or we've got a lot of contributors from Brazil and Argentina, those are pieces of that low-level infrastructure that we think needs to be built once and be done. You know, I mean, we, we just threw a helicopter on Mars and nobody thought they should rewrite that from scratch. That's all open source. I'm not sure why the rest of the world needs to start over from scratch for payments on every single project. That's a good point. We're not trying to fly a helicopter on Mars with this stuff. But we start from scratch, and I, I would assume that, that was a harder project than what we're doing at Move. Good point. Mars isn't regulated. <laughs> <laughs> or built on legacy tech. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we're going straight to the protocol, though, right? I don't think you can have an open source integration to a proprietary technology. The payment rails in almost every country, the protocol is not proprietary. And so building from the protocol into the primitive and then allowing companies to build their disruptive feature on top of that has really been the motivation. All of this is an experiment and seems to be working so far. So hopefully it continues. This is Ask Wade Anything, the CEO of Move Technologies. Ask him any question, personal, professional, emotional. My wife will tell you I don't have any of those. <laughs> so I've got a couple here, but one that I'd be really interested to see your perspective from is if I have an idea 
And I wanted to build a fintech around that idea, whether it be moving money from person to person or from business to business. Where should I start first and what should I do first? Our community is the first place to start. We have a lot of people that show up in there. We had a conversation that happened today, which was, how do I get money from the United States to Nepal? And it turns out I didn't know that was a problem. I didn't know some of these great companies that do FX transfers don't support Nepal. And so inside of the community, somebody said, oh, we support direct payments to Nepal. Give us a call. And I think half of what the Move community is doing is pointing you in the right direction. And, and that's something that obviously we have a for-profit side of our business, but you can't do everything. And how I met Lee, right? There's nothing that I have to sell to Lee, but hopefully I was able to point them in the right direction. That to me is even if you're not contributing to open source, you are being open and transparent, which is a key value of being open source. And that's what we're trying to embrace at Move is we want you to go build badass stuff. And if that's on our platform or not, and I think trying to have an authentic brand where we're not trying to be everything to everybody is really important for who we are. Michelle, you have a question? I do. I do have a question. I'm just curious, what's been your biggest, most grueling part of this, right? Obviously, it's there's a lot of talk about compliance, but just in general, is there anything that really stands out that you didn't expect to be as big of a challenge? A lot of these protocols are standards. Metro 2 is actually the the protocol for credit reporting in the United States, all three credit bureaus utilize that or ISO 8583 is how credit cards and debit cards do issuing and acquiring, sending and receiving of money. For sure, when I started this thing, I thought you can go get, for example, with Metro 2, TransUnion, Equifax, it's the end of the day, my brain's not working, whatever the third one is. I, I would have thought that they would want to allow us to open source the actual server that takes a REST call, submits the data to their server in their protocol, takes the responses, stores it for six years in a database. Like we really want to open source those primitives or for example, card issuing. The, it's an ISO 8583 message. Here's exactly the data structure, but the client server, the actual communication between the Visa, MasterCard, or Discover networks, they've got that outlined in a 300-page PDF. And I don't think that's a differentiator to anyone. If you can read and you can write code, you, you can make one. I would have hoped to open source those. The innovation is what you build on top of it. Look at things like privacy.com. It's assumed that the card swipe works and they've built all this beautiful user experience and card controls on top of it. And so that's an area that I'm still working really hard on is convincing some of these larger companies to not make those primitives proprietary. And they actually would be better off if we were able to Apache to those and open source them and have a reference architecture that everybody could use. And boy, wouldn't that be great that anybody could build off of that. I look at companies like Stripe, acquiring credit cards online has been around for a long time. That's nothing new using machine learning and artificial intelligence to get a increase of 35% adoption because they tried it a couple different ways. That's Stripe's brilliance. And, and by the way, they can do that in hundreds of countries. That has nothing to do with interfacing to the card network. That has everything to do with what makes what they're doing super interesting and a great user experience. 
we would like to continue open sourcing some of the things we're doing. And hopefully I'm in a position of influence to convince people that it's in their best interest to do that. So that that for me was a total unknown because it's a no-brainer. Hey, TransUnion, would you like people to use your service more? Yes. Great. <laughs> you know, here, here's a solution for that. It's free. That for sure has been the biggest miscalculation I've had so far. Wow. Follow-up question. What do you feel was the hesitation there or the friction? Frequently, you take a card network. The majority of their value is their network, but there, there maybe is some business unit that does issuing or acquiring, but it's non-material as they would say on the public markets. So that business unit would think an open source solution would be competitive. You can buy software, for example, from the credit bureau companies that run on your Windows desktop that allow you to submit credit reports and connect to your access database. That was as thick of sarcasm as I possibly could give. And that it, it maybe makes a couple million dollars a year for a company that's worth tens of billions. So it, it competes against that business unit, but it, it impedes anybody using their technology it impedes their adoption of their technology. And so I think you just have to be talking to the right level of individual at those companies in order to make that more strategic decision. Yeah, it gets complicated really, really quickly when you start to try and figure out where to talk and who to talk to in the different levels. But it can happen and can move forward with it. Stephen, what is your question for Wade? Well, I think a lot of the questions that we've been talking about so far have been centered around payments. So my question around payments is a lot of the move connections and adapters are really built around the traditional protocols that are used by a lot of the payment networks. But with the shift in the move to cryptocurrency payment networks that are you know, decentralized and displacing those particular areas, how do you see moves play into that space? We believe that user optionality is the most important thing that we can focus on as, as a company. And however you want to receive value, if you want that in Bitcoin or ACH to your bank or a prepaid card, I don't care. I just want to pay you. And so the more optionality, the better. And that's our mindset. Where we play in that space, the entire impetus of Move actually came from me being highly involved in the Ethereum community and going, this is so stupid that it is easier for me to move money on Ethereum than it is to move money in the United States of America. That I can figure out how to do a digital cryptographically pure wallet on Ethereum and I can't do this in the United States. And then you've got 100,000 of, in my opinion, the smartest people worldwide that are contributing to the Ethereum project and spent some time in the Hyperledger project as well. And same thing, super smart people contributing their time to make better infrastructure. So that's where the impetus came from. The funny part is that CoinLion, Coinbase, PayPal, Square, Libra Association, USDC, these are some of the most prolific contributors to the move open source projects because they act as gateways between US currency and cryptocurrency. I would have never thought that. It turns out for a stable coin, you need US treasuries behind it. And, and ACH is a good answer for that. I really hope that these ecosystems over time converge more. And who knows, someday maybe we need to make a, like the Cloud Native Foundation, we need to make a Payments Alliance Foundation and everybody contribute stuff into that. Wade, I love that answer. 
I'm going to move on to Lee to ask the final question of the evening. Yes, thank you. This is through the lens of understanding Wade, the entrepreneur, Wade, the business owner. In your career, have you ever had any data breach experience or any failures around data compliance? And if so, what was your big takeaways from that and how did you grow from it? Yeah, so knock on wood, I have not. I've sent a million and a half payments to the wrong bank before, but I feel like that's my own fault rather than the hacker getting involved. But I think especially in some of the things you're doing, Lee, and around machine learning and, and other tools, training those models with tokenized data that the computer doesn't know the difference. And so we've always been super active at Bano. It was really on behalf of the core systems that we're integrated to. We're, we're in charge of things. At Bilgo, we utilize very good security and did tokenization and things like that. We actually have hired onto our team a gentleman, Pavel, that built an open source version of VGS, which is totally crazy. He got hired pretty quickly and it's called Vaulty and it's out there on GitHub. But in kind of software engineering practices, the, the more that you can do domain specific languages and account numbers and birthdays and card numbers, keeping those tokenized and putting the access controls around those, the better. There's for example, in a card network, once you're issuing or acquiring platforms certified, you, know, you can't touch it again. You can't add code to it until you recertify it. And thinking of that as more of a DMZ and this vault where it brings in sensitive data, tokenizes it, and then tells the rest of the system that this tokenized user, something happened to it. And making that nice, clean separation, I, I think is critically important. That's a, the keeping the bad guys out. I always worry more about your startup. You're hiring as fast as you can, and, and hopefully you're interviewing and your onboarding is the best possible. A database table that has non-encrypted data is really bad practices. And so if you just go through PCI compliance ever in your life, or frankly, SOC 2s for that matter, these are scary words that are called compliance, but they're a pretty freaking low bar. Like as a software engineer, you would want to do more than that. And so I think treating it as it is that it's, it's nuclear, right? That data gets breached and you're out of business and you're probably personally liable as an executive of the company is a good mindset for putting the effort in to keep things safe. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that. And great advice. Um, happy to hear you have not had any war stories there, but was hopeful that there may have been some experiences from failures. So. Thank you. I'm super glad that was your hardball question for today. Thank you, Lee, for hopping on. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you all for coming on and asking Wade anything. And Wade, thank you so much and have a great evening. Be sure to subscribe to Fintech Confidential on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player by going to podcast.fintechconfidential. Our show notes in each episode are available at www.fintechconfidential.com. And you can get Fintech Confidential information by signing up at access.fintechconfidential.com. If you want to be a guest on Fintech Confidential, submit your application at guest.fintechconfidential.com. Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid.